Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Religion on the New Books Network. My name is Diana DeHanova, and I will be your host today. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Kathleen Gallagher-Elkins. Dr. Gallagher-Elkins is Associate Professor of Theology and Religious Studies at St. Norbert College in De Pere, Wisconsin. Today we'll be discussing her 2018 book, Mary, Mother of Martyrs, How Motherhood Became Self-Sacrifice in Early Christianity. Dr. Gallagher-Elkins, welcome to the program, and thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, in your book, uh, you consider four textual sites in the New Testament in the Book of Maccabees, where mothering is presented or discussed as intimately connected to sacrifice. How did you choose these texts, and who are the mothers that are presented there? Yeah, um, like a lot of things in my scholarly work and probably (laughs) in my real life, um, this made more sense to me in hindsight So I didn't necessarily plan, uh, I I would love to be able to say that I had some plan to, you know, long-term include these four, but it was actually my doctoral advisor who pointed out to me that I kept finding an interest in women's stories in the ancient world where they were um, presented as a mother. So sometimes presented with their children, sometimes just described as a mother, but the story was really focused on them. Um, And they were all in these stories of violent loss, either their own loss or their children's or both. And um, my advisor, Dr. Melanie Johnson-Deboffrey, was the one who said, you know, are you doing this on purpose? Do you you mean to be like following this train of thought? And it was then that I realized that this was something that really interested me. Um, It was in part a personal interest because during my doctoral studies, I became a mother But it was also just that these stories seemed so rich, and it seemed to me that interpreters sometimes flattened them into um, a story that kind of just meant one easy thing, and I thought there was a lot more to them. Um, So it was sort of in hindsight that that she pointed it out to me that I was doing this, and then as I started working on the dissertation, I um, sort of pieced all of them together, and then the book version more fully explained, uh, explored these four textual sites. Um, So the four that I looked at are, the key one is Mary, mother of Jesus, or Mary of Nazareth. That was really where my interest started. Um, And from there, I noticed that there were these other stories that were linked to her story, either deliberately in the text itself or later in the history of interpretation. Um, So the next one was the um, women. Some of them are mothers. One of them is uh, portrayed as sort of about to become a mother in the book of Revelation. Uh, The next was the mother in the the books of the Maccabees. So she's in two and four Maccabees, but I really focus on four Maccabees because her story is fuller there. Um, And then the last two mothers are in the non-canonical story of the Passion of Perpetua and Felicitas, so the two eponymous martyrs that are in that story. And what is the rhetorical work that's traditionally performed by the figure of the suffering mother in Christian texts? 
Well, I think she is usually depicted, so this is Mary, but also kind of generally anyone who um, lives up to the standard that Mary sets, she's mm-hmm. usually presented as the ideal for all women, um, particularly mothers, but not just mothers. So even, um, you know, traditionally, maybe a nun would aspire to be like these self-sacrificing, suffering mothers. So I really saw Mary as the kind of paradigmatic version of this. But the other mothers also present impossible ideals in certain ways. So Mary is the most impossible because she's both virgin and mother. um, And who can live up to that standard, right? That's a thing that (laughs) feminist theologians forever have said that that's um, the most impossible standard of motherhood. Um, But the other women, similarly, I think, are often presented as, uh, look at this extreme thing that a particular mother did, and then they're presented as the ideal that all mothers are supposed to imitate, and then by extension, all women even if they don't live in, I mean, for example, I, you know, have never faced martyrdom and yet (laughs) I'm supposed to um, somehow still be able to imitate Perpetua and Felicitas in my own um, normal suburban daily life. Uh, And how does this uh, suffering maternal ideal in Christian literature differ from the dominant conception of motherhood in pre-Christian societies? Yeah, this was a really interesting thing to me as I um, got into the literature, like trying to sort of learn from classicists on this, which um, is a thing in New Testament studies that we sometimes do well and sometimes forget that there are other people working in the same time period. Um, So there is a lot of really interesting classical work on the ancient Roman family or the ancient Greco-Roman family. In particular, Suzanne Dixon wrote a book in the late 80s called The Roman Mother, And when I was reading that, that was when it really um, became clear to me that these Christian and Jewish mothers were presented as very different than ancient Roman, in particular, ancient Roman mothers, because these, uh, and also I should say, the thing that really interested me was the ways that they're different from um, what we think of as normal or natural motherhood today. So ancient Roman motherhood is often characterized as um, the kind of ideal mother, I should say, is formidable. She's domineering. That's how we would think of it, I think. It's like kind of overbearing. Mm -hmm. She's really involved in her adult children's lives. So elite mothers especially outsource the work of infancy and young childhood to slaves predominantly. And then their um, focus, the thing that is really the... um, focus of their motherhood is their adult children. So especially making sure that they marry well, um, that they have their own children. So much more involved in their adult children's lives, which for me in particular, the thing that stuck out to me there was that's such a contrast from what we think of today, in particular in the US, that like your um, focus should be, as a mother, should be um, on that kind of formative infancy young childhood that kind of period of life. And then as children age, you are a bit more hands-off. Um, but it, it is also, as you implied in your question, a really different ideal than what eventually evolved in Christian and to a certain extent, ancient Jewish literature. And I think in particular, the thing that I focused on here is the context of violence. So the stories that I was reading in the works by classicists um, those stories just didn't include violence. They were, you know, stories of um, taking care of their older children, making sure that they married, 
And then there were these other examples that I was looking at in the New Testament and um, these non-canonical texts where the setting was this setting of incredible loss or violence. And so in part, the ideal comes out of those different contexts. Uh, so in your introduction, uh, you talk about the politics of biblical interpretation, and this is kind of dovetailing on the previous question, and the ways in which the scholarship on family agency and sacrifice in antiquity, quote, often engages and concerns itself with modern political claims about family values and with pop Freudian ideas about the crucial role of the mother in a young child's life. I think this is something that's familiar to all women living in the Western world, whether we're mothers or not. Uh, So could you talk a bit about how this area of study has been shaped by these kinds of concerns and how you attend to this issue in the monograph? Yeah, this was the thing. um, I think this was the, the real hook for me personally, because when I became a mother, I think like um, most academics, I tried to solve all my problems by reading books. So like if I couldn't figure out how to get my kid to go to sleep, then I would go to the library and get all the books about kids sleep. And it just struck me that when I was reading these books for personal reasons about my own parenting, and then I would go to work and read about ancient families, there was a kind of similar expectation. So for example, um, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more in detail, when interpreters read the story of Perpetua and Felicitas, Perpetua is a young mother who leaves her her young child behind in order to become a martyr. She like embraces martyrdom um, and death in the arena and leaves her child behind. And interpreters almost... I wouldn't say universally, but pretty consistently fault her for that. And, and in a way do this kind of like ancient mommy wars thing where they're like, (laughs) oh, she's very selfish. She's putting her own needs ahead of her child's. And it just struck me that without saying so, interpreters were often engaging these modern debates about motherhood and parenthood and family life but doing so kind of in the context of interpreting these ancient texts, but they weren't necessarily clear about that. And that is a thing, I think, in biblical interpretation that um, we continue to wrestle with. Bible scholars are always sort of reminding ourselves uh, and, uh, you know, I think reminding each other that we're interpreting a text that some people take very seriously, uh, and many of us take very seriously, but it has a lot of cultural power And if we don't recognize the politics of what we're doing and the ways that this influences people's lives, then we might be really doing some serious harm without acknowledging it. Mm -hmm. And this was sort of one of the things that I saw that interpreters would sort of superimpose their own values, their own, um, I mean, I I said in that quote that you read about pop Freudian, like there's Mm -hmm. this um, weird kind of psychoanalyzing of these ancient texts, right? Like not, not a kind of psycho, psychoanalytic interpretation of a text, but psychoanalyzing the characters as if they're real people, as if, you know, we can diagnose them with things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just really struck me, especially in contrasting these books about how to parent, modern books about how to parent, and then the ancient, the um, interpretations of ancient texts, that maybe we were actually working on the same things and working out the same anxieties just kind of not acknowledging it or not saying, this is what I'm doing when I'm reading, for example, the Gospel of Luke. (laughs) 
Uh, so to get more into the specific text, so as you mentioned, uh, your investigation of maternal self-sacrifice begins with Mary. And you write, quote, traditional Mariology presents the mother of Jesus as the pure, self-sacrificing, humble handmaiden of the Lord and patient mother full of sorrows. These virtues, moreover, are presented as aspirational ideals for all mothers, indeed all women. However, as you discussed, this is a composite image of Mary. It's synthesized from contradictory biblical narratives. So how did this image develop in traditional Mariology? And how did Mary come to embody this ultimate maternal ideal in Christianity? Yeah, this is, um, I feel like this is one of those questions that deserves its own book. And, of course. and frankly, there there are a lot of books about this that um, I learned from and I'm very indebted to. Um, so it is, I think, really striking that traditional Mariology, one of the really key things that it does is it makes all of the various portraits of Mary in the New Testament and then eventually outside of the New Testament into one harmonious portrait of Mary as, um, like I'm sort of putting this in quotes, as a real woman, right? As a woman mm-hmm. who, um, you know, has this sort of like continuous narrative. And it's Elizabeth Johnson in particular uh, that has argued, when we do that, we're really flattening out these complex stories. She has this image of the different pieces of Mary's story in the New Testament as uh, the tessera in a mosaic, the little tiny pieces of tile. And so instead of flattening out the story and kind of making it a well-rounded, here's this continuous person that, um, you know, eventually the doctrines will add a kind of beginning and ending to her life, that there's the immaculate conception, and then um, the kind of end of her life has this glorious moment. So uh, the traditional Mariology often makes Mary seem as if she's a kind of flat person. In particular, this happens when she's presented as um, at the Annunciation, when um, when the angel Gabriel says, "You know, you're going to bear this child. His name will be Jesus." Um, that 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 moment in Luke's Gospel is sometimes presented as her just passively accepting a fate. Mm-hmm. Um, and feminist interpreters here have especially tried to emphasize, like, maybe we should read that as a choice in a way that she co-creates with God instead of seeing her as passively um, accepting that. And then the other moment where she's often portrayed as passive and humble and accepting whatever's happening is at the crucifixion, um, which, you know, if if we step back for a moment and just sort of ask, like, are there, is it... Is it um, a normal response that a mother would just happily accept the death of her child? Probably mm-hmm. not. And so why is it that for Mary, we sort of assume like, oh, yes, at the crucifixion, she is um, accepting of this reality, welcoming it, maybe even knew about it, right? Certain doctrines will say that even at the moment of the Annunciation, she knows what will happen to her son. Um, so in terms of how it develops, I would say there's there are a lot of pieces, right? If we think about that image of a mosaic, there are tons and tons of pieces that come together. But Mary does eventually become the, the kind of ultimate maternal ideal and then by extension, the ultimate feminine ideal. Um, and actually, one of the things that I found was so interesting is that even happens in feminist work. So feminist theologians and feminist biblical interpreters have pushed back against the image of the kind of traditional Mary who is, um, as you quoted, that's from Elizabeth Schussler-Fiorenza, the pure self-sacrificing humble handmaiden of the Lord. 
feminist interpreters have said like, well, what if we tried to view her differently? But Mary almost always emerges as an ideal. There are very few exceptions where she's not presented as the kind of ideal way for women and by extension mothers uh, to live. So that was a thing that really struck me that even when feminist interpreters are trying to say, no, we should view her differently, um, the the outcome is still that she remains an ideal woman and a thing that, in this case, feminists would then aspire to be like. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk a bit more about the specific uh, biblical text that you focus on in this chapter, and how would you describe the interpretive framework that you use to read them? Sure. So um, the there's a book called Mary in the New Testament, edited by um, four or five different interpreters, um, including Raymond Brown. I think he's the lead one. And they focus in detail on each of the moments where Mary is mentioned by name or something like the mother of Jesus, right? Even if she's not named, but she's um, alluded to. And in that chapter, I decided not to go that route and not to explore every um, possible text because it seems to me that there are three really key ones. Um, So those are the ones that I focused on. So it is the infancy narrative in Matthew the infancy narrative in Luke, which, um, you know, for most kind of lay interpreters, those, (laughs) those must not be that different because they're just the Christmas story. But um, anyone who has taken an intro to New Testament class knows that it turns out they're actually very different stories. Matthew um, has all of this threat and danger. Luke is just happy all the time singing angels. And then, um, you know, in churches, we like, sort of smash those two together and call it Christmas. So it's an interesting experience to read the two separately and find like, no, actually, they're quite different stories that are narrating something very different about um, the origins of Jesus. And then the last one, actually, the place that I start is um, John 19, which is the crucifixion scene. So in um, arguably in all of the crucifixion scenes, Mary might be there. It's not as clear in the other three Gospels in Matthew, Mark and Luke. Um, There is a Mary that is named there. Oh, actually, there are two Marys. Um, But Mary was a very common name in the first century. It doesn't clearly say that it's Mary, the mother of Jesus. But in John's gospel, it does. And that is the scene, um, I think, that many people think of when they think of the crucifixion. They think of Jesus on the cross in the middle, and then on one side, his mother, and on the other side, his um, the beloved disciple, his most devoted friend. Um, And so it's interesting that that is one of the scenes that has really inspired art, right? Western art in in this tradition has really picked up on that scene in particular. And because Jesus speaks to her from the cross, um, that's another moment in terms of understanding Mary's life, um, or the depiction of Mary's life, I should say, that has become um, a really key text. And in terms of um, how I'm looking at these The main focus for me here, so one of the things that's interesting about studying the Gospels is that the Gospels are about Jesus. Like the point of the Gospels is to convince you about Jesus and convince you that he's the Messiah. But then we also have all these other characters that people tend to be interested in, and Mary is one. So it's almost, um, I mean, anytime we're reading the Gospels for information that's not strictly about Jesus, we're reading against the grain of what they are asking us to do. Um, And the thing that I say in this chapter is that I begin at the end. I begin with the crucifixion because all of the gospels know that that's where it's headed. They're not, um, they're not like 
newspaper entries. They're, they know that the, the story ends with crucifixion. And so even when we're reading infancy narratives and reading about what happens to Jesus's parents before he's born, the point, if we're thinking about like what the, you know, the thesis of the gospel is, the point is that Jesus will die. So we know that Mary will accept the unexpected pregnancy. We know that Jesus will grow up. We know that Jesus will die because that's how the story has to end. Like that's where we know it's headed. So that was why I, why I started at the end and then sort of retraced the steps to get back to the beginning. Uh, now, one of the differences uh, in the ways that Mary is understood around the world has to do with the different interpretations of her among the various Christian denominations. So for myself as a scholar of Eastern Orthodoxy, she is usually emphasized as the God-bearer. So her motherhood is much more important than her virginity. Could you talk a little bit about the differences uh, between this interpretation of Mary uh, in different denominations? Yeah. And actually, I mean, I feel like I would love to hear you talk more about her role as Theotokos, because that is a distinct emphasis in Eastern Orthodoxy as it compares to, um, for example, Roman Catholicism or different Protestant denominations. Hmm. Um, So the, the distinction that I focused on very briefly in this chapter is that traditionally Roman Catholicism will focus on Mary's um, role as the sort of intermediary between Jesus and us and as um, the virgin mother, right? So she's, um, again, this kind of impossible ideal, but the thing that women and actually all believers eventually are supposed to look up to. It's interesting that after the Second Vatican Council, she, Roman Catholic versions of Mary start to look more like Protestant versions of Mary um, mm-hmm. So the Protestant emphasis, well, on the one hand, Protestants haven't said a ton about Mary. <laughs> I think that there was a sort of mutual agreement at some point where it was like, okay, well, the Catholics get Mary and the Protestants just won't focus on her that much. Mm-hmm. Um, so eventually, though, there is some Protestant emphasis on Mary as a disciple, which after Vatican II is also where the Roman Catholic Church ends up. Um, In particular, I talked about uh, the ways that the Second Vatican Council discussed Mary and which documents she ended up in. Um, So apparently this was a point of contention in the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, that some some people wanted to put Mary in her own document to discuss Mary's role. And eventually where the council put the discussion of Mary was in the text Lumen Gentium. So it's interesting that she doesn't get her own text and she's discussed there as a model for all believers. So in certain ways, she kind of becomes more like that Protestant version of Mary, where she's seen as an ideal disciple, as the one who, you know, maybe even at the moment of the Annunciation becomes a disciple to her own son, um, which Simone Simone de Beauvoir has very famously (laughs) critiqued as like the ultimate patriarchal win that like even before her son is born, she's kneeling at his feet or something like that. Um, so it's it's an interesting thing to see the distinctions among the different Christian denominations, but then there are these moments of overlap or connection or change where they um, also maybe share more, like there are distinctions, but they share maybe some important emphases as well. You write that there are two major ways in which the figure of Mary as self-sacrificing mother is deployed. The first is harmful and abusive, 
and the second is creative and strategic. Uh, could you talk a bit about these two matters of employment? Uh, sorry, manners of deployment. Yeah, sure. Um, so this is um, in particular building off the work of Elizabeth Johnson. Um, in her book, Truly Our Sister, she distinguishes between these two uses of Mary. And actually, when I've taught, um, I teach women in the Bible as part of my regular course rotation. And my undergrads love this chapter. They like cannot stop talking about the different ways that Mary can be used because they're more familiar with the harmful one, right? The ways that um, there's this great quote in Elizabeth Johnson's book about um, Mary is a stick to beat smart girls with. <laughs> um, and I teach at a Catholic college. There are lots of students who come from um, Catholic K-12 schools, and they really identify this. They can mm -hmm. see the ways that Mary is used against girls as they're growing up, girls who are talkative or smart or ambitious, and that Mary is then held up as the ideal for what they should be striving for, um, and that they should be humble, they should be self-sacrificing. Um, so that's the kind of harmful and abusive one. But then the thing that I found um, as I was researching, and in particular, um, the place that I explore this in the chapter is um, the ways that she has been used by activist groups. In particular, the one I focus on in this chapter is the Madres de Plaza de Mayo in Argentina. And because they protested the loss of their children by using Marian imagery. They, it's not like they said, we're not being like Mary because we're protesting. They said, we're imitating Mary. We are doing exactly what she did by remaining at the cross, by staying present, and um, witnessing the death of a child, we're doing what Mary did. And that's why we're here protesting the loss of our children. So it seemed to me that that was doing something different. That wasn't the same thing as even though they talked about Mary as self-sacrificing, even though they talked about her as humble, um, they weren't doing the same thing as the kind of harmful or abusive version that is putting women in their place, right? They were finding a place and finding their own voice by using Mary's story. And so as I was exploring that, that was where it really where I came to the sense that like, these are not the same thing, even though the language really lines up, it might sound like they're um, agreeing with that initial interpretation of Mary, but it's something much more creative and it's something much more life-giving. Um, so it was, this was me sort of trying to wrestle through how do we understand that overlap without collapsing the distinctions between the two. Mm -hmm. uh, and we will return to the modern examples of uh, Marian imagery a little bit later. Mm -hmm. uh, now, your second chapter focuses on mothers in the book of Revelation, a text that's, um, as you write, a fruitful place to illustrate some of the various uses of maternal imagery in a narrative context of social violence. Um, and I don't think this is a text that people necessarily readily think of as a text that uh, examines motherhood. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about how the discourses of violence and sacrifice in Revelation are tied to these notions of sacrificial mothers? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's so interesting in Revelation is that scholars seem to agree that it's a, a dualistic text. And for the most part, I would agree with that. It's it's a apocalyptic. Apocalyptic literature is often um, very strongly dualistic, where there's a clear good guy and a clear bad guy and a clear sense of what the um, how the how the good will triumph over the evil in the end. Um, and 
most scholars have noted that there are only four female figures in the book of Revelation. And one of the things that I noticed as I was doing this research is that three of them are mothers. And the last one is a bride. Um, And in the ancient world, I mean, maybe even (laughs) for some families today, um, but in the ancient world, a bride and marriage implies children, right? That's sort of like the next expected step. Um, There's even a link um, in the Latin matrimonium is an institution for making matres, making mothers. Um, So it seemed to me that even though these women were often presented as two good women and two bad women, right? They're kind of very clearly, um, they seem like they're an example of this dualism in the book of Revelation, where the two are on the side of goodness and light and the other two are um, corrupting the people of God. The thing that I noticed was that actually the the main thing that links them all together is that they are threatened and threatening. So there is violence directed at all of them and also two of them, the ones that are usually depicted as the bad ones, um, are, are seen as threatening the people of God somehow with um, some kind of theological violence, at least, if not um, political or social violence. So it seemed to me that viewing them all as mothers and as vulnerable mothers was actually a way to reframe this strong sense that it's a really dualistic text, that it um, that it kind of like conforms to our expectations of being clearly on the side of good, and then the side of evil is depicted as kind of monstrous and horrible. Um, but if we only look at the mothers, if we really focus in on them, then there's actually something very interesting that happens there, because they emerge as not that different. They emerge as... Um, trying to protect their children, trying to avoid being destroyed. And um, very famously, a a number of feminist interpreters of Revelation have pointed this out. None of them seem to survive the book of Revelation. I mean, um, like if we're thinking about what happens at the end, it seems like they're all gone. So um, Revelation, (laughs) Tina Pippin's very famous phrasing for this is, Revelation is not a safe place for women. Um, (laughs) And so in that way, seeing the ways that they're actually more alike than different to me was more useful than just aligning them kind of on the one side of good and then on the other side as evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, so moving to the third chapter, it focuses on mother and her seven sons in Maccabees four, which you mentioned at the beginning. And in this narrative, the Maccabean mother encourages her seven sons to die nobly, which overrides these uh, so-called natural maternal instincts in favor of remaining faithful to ancestral traditions. And you write that this narrative of maternal sacrifice is, quote, particularly useful for those authors attempting to demonstrate the validity and nobility of their race, nation, and associated religious traditions. Uh, So could you talk about how Maccabees IV has been deployed for this purpose in both the Jewish and the Christian traditions? Yeah, so in four Maccabees, um, and this also happens in two Maccabees, and it happens in the later rewritings of the story, which um, there are so many, and they're all varied, but like, just, it's such an interesting set of texts. I really just love four Maccabees so much. (laughs) This is another one that I teach in Women in the Bible, and I think I overwhelm my students with how much I love this text. Um, So it's, it's such an interesting way of framing it, especially in for Maccabees, though it happens in these other versions too, where they emphasize that she is basically the best mother that has ever lived. Um, they talk about, uh, there's this one encomium to the mother where it says, mothers naturally feel um, like sympathy for their children. 
in part because, and I think this is just like the most bananas, but best (laughs) description of things, um, because they felt pain during childbirth, they feel more affection for their children. So because she had seven painful births, she feels more affection for her children than any other mother who's ever lived. And yet she still um, is willing to sacrifice her children for the sake of piety, right? That's the um, kind of the theme of the whole book of Four Maccabees is um, that piety is the thing that should command all of your attention. It should, um, you should be able to kind of give everything for the sake of your religion. Um, And so even though this mother, you would think would not want to do this, and you would think also that kind of plays on the natural, um, quote, weakness of mothers, So even though you would think this mother would be weak and she wouldn't be able to do it, even though you would think that she would be so um, like tied to her children, she'd be so connected to them that she wouldn't want them to die. The power of Jewish piety is such that she's even willing to sacrifice her own children. And then eventually at the very end of the book, she also dies, though that is just like a total afterthought. It's really about her sons and how she encourages them to die. So um, the thing that is so interesting about Four Maccabees in terms of understanding its role in Jewish and Christian traditions is that it's a Jewish book written, um, well, there are like lots of arguments about when it was written, but written when there were certainly people who thought that Jesus was the Messiah. So they may not have been Christians yet. They may not have used that word for themselves. Christianity as a thing may not really exist quite yet. Um, but there, there are people who, you know, follow Jesus, think he is the, Jew, the Jewish Messiah. But this book really seems to be much more on the, the Jewish side of things and not so much influenced by what would eventually become Christianity. And yet the people that transmit it, for the most part, are Christians. They're the, the copyists and the scribes who kind of keep this going and who eventually canonize it in certain canons. It's in... Um, Roman Catholic and Orthodox canons, but not in most Protestant canons. So it's interesting that um, this is like, uh, to use Daniel Boyarn's phrase, this is like one of the borderlines between mm-hmm. what eventually becomes Judaism and Christianity. And uh, even until very recently, I think, I don't have the date off the top of my head, I think until maybe the 1970s, the Roman Catholic Church venerated the martyrs, the Maccabean martyrs, as saints which is very unusual because they're seen as pre-Christian. They're seen as um, not like they would have been born in terms of when the story is set before Jesus lived. So they, they could not have been Christian and yet they're um, valorized and highlighted as Christian saints, which is really an unusual thing. Uh, so you talk about how the traditional scholarly discussion of this text kind of changed over time and particularly in the aftermath of the Holocaust. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, this just becomes one of the more thorny sites of post-Holocaust biblical interpretation. So um, just to back up for a minute, New Testament studies generally has um, a a real Nazi problem. (laughs) I mean, to put it like very strongly, Um, there, like, it's just a fact that a lot of the really formative um, interpreters were Germans in the 1940s and even a little bit after some of them were actual like card carrying Nazis and Susanna Heschel's work here has been so crucial in bringing that to the fore. 
even the ones who weren't, even the ones who, you know, maybe um, quietly dissented, or maybe they emigrated and from a distance were critical of Hitler and the Nazis, they were still influenced by a long tradition of Christian anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism. And that is just a thing generally that New Testament scholars continue to wrestle with. And um, I mean, I think we've made some really important strides here, but I think there's still just a ton of work to do in this area. Um, And so in particular for Christian interpreters, wrestling with the kind of Jewish Christian, um, that borderline that we were just talking about, that kind of messy in-between thing, there's just a lot of, um, it's like walking in a minefield. There are just a lot of ways to accidentally or on purpose end up um, saying something that sounds anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic. In particular, in Jewish interpretations of this text, the question of Jewish martyrdom has really become a very live one. So um, Emil Fackenheim very famously said that Hitler killed the notion of Jewish martyrdom itself. Because in the camps, there, there's, no, um, there's no choice for death. Death is actually the point in terms of what the Nazis wanted. So the idea of, with, with all of that, the idea of valorizing these Jews who willingly die for their faith is just so complicated. Um, and I would say, especially, it sounds like for Jewish interpreters um, and differently for Christian interpreters, there's just a lot of potential for harm when interpreting these texts. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of scholarly discussion that tries to wrestle with this particular text in light of the Holocaust and show that there may be a way to still see them as heroic, even if we don't necessarily um, even if we don't necessarily valorize their actions for what we might do today or what we might see today as um, an honorable way of dying. Maybe we would instead say that, um, you know, sanctifying life is eventually the language that gets used. Rather than sanctifying the divine name through death, we should sanctify life through continuing to survive. Uh, it reminds me a bit of the uh, discussion within uh, Jewish and also criti- uh, Jewish criticism uh, around the story of Masada um, and the Jews who chose to die rather than uh, surrendering. Uh, so I think there's some similarities there, and that's certainly an ongoing discussion in Jewish studies. <laughs> yes, exactly. And Daniel Boyarn, I think I quote this in the book, has a um, an article that wrestles with, you know, should we valorize Masada or should we valorize um, Yavne, Jamnia, which is mm-hmm. the kind of opposite, like we'll escape and we will not fight and we will survive. Yeah. Uh, now, in the last, the fourth chapter, um, you focus on the passion of Perpetua and Felicitas, which uh, you also mentioned at the beginning. Uh, and this is a narrative that focuses on two women who embrace martyrs' deaths uh, in the Roman arena rather than renounce their conversion to Christianity uh, and sacrifice their children in the process. And this narrative represents a significant departure from the maternal ideal of self-sacrifice for the sake of one's children, even in comparison to the mother of the Maccabees. Uh, so could you discuss a bit the portrayal of motherhood in the narrative? Sure. Yeah. So this text, um, there's actually some overlap with uh, the Book of Four Maccabees in that motherhood is depicted as a really visceral experience. So um, there's a real emphasis on Perpetua's breastfeeding. 
Um, she has some dreams about it. It's also the thing that kind of consumes her in the early part of the book that she's just so worried about what will happen to her young child if she's not there. Um, which when I teach this, this is another text that I've taught regularly. And <laughs> I always have to remind students like, this is a world without formula. This is a world where your milk comes from a human. So you need a person to keep you alive when you're a baby. Um, and so like, this is the thing that consumes her when she's first arrested is how will I feed my baby? How is the baby going to survive? And then uh, Felicitas is arrested when she's pregnant. And so the focus for her is how is she going to end up, how will she die with her co-martyrs? How will she die with her friends? Because the Romans wouldn't execute a pregnant woman. And she doesn't want to die later without um, her friends with her. She wants to like go when everyone else is going. So she prays and eventually goes into labor early and she survives and the baby survives. And um, it's, it's written as a kind of happy ending, like Perpetua's baby is weaned. So he's going to be okay. Felicitas's daughter is adopted by, it says by one of the sisters. Um, and that seems to me to be Christian language for like another believer, another member of the church rather than biological sister, especially since one of the key emphases in this book is about breaking biological family ties for the sake of choosing one's Christian family, right? The kind of metaphor of Christian family um, and Christian uh, belonging as part of a family. So it's interesting that um, the portrayal of motherhood in this story is very visceral, but that that is eventually um, sort of sidelined in favor of being part of this community. And especially Perpetua emerges as a kind of mother of the community in the arena, because as, as they're all kind of being, um, you know, like mauled by the beasts, she is calling out encouragement to them and emerges as one of the real leaders. Um, and so in that way, sort of becomes the mother of the community rather than only or simply the mother of her biological child. And the scholarship around Perpetua and Felicitas is a prime example of your earlier discussion about the tendency of scholars to impose anachronistic concepts of natural and normal families onto ancient texts. How has this tendency shaped uh, scholarly readings of Perpetua and Felicitas? Yeah, I think this is the most, this is the um, text where I see this the most clearly, though it, it emerges in the others in really striking ways too. But there are just so many scholars when talking about Perpetua and Felicitas that um, are just like, I think they, you know, put a sort of scholarly face on this, but it seems like they're just horrified by their actions, by Felicitas and Perpetua's actions. And and they have this kind of um, modern assumption that a child needs its mother when it's young and that a mother, a good mother, should never leave her child um, and to be honest, like if I'm putting my cards on the table, I do understand that. It's not like I fault someone for having a reaction. I think the martyr texts generally are really strange to us. Um, and they're supposed to be, they're supposed to be extreme examples. So like, that's why they exist. They exist because they're so extreme and they're supposed to, um, kind of encourage us to act in a similar way, even if we're not in the same extreme circumstances, um, but scholars seem like they just almost kind of can't hold themselves back from being horrified by the actions of these two women, in particular, because they leave very young children. And that question is just never asked of male martyrs. 
whether it's in this text or other ones. Um, I'm pretty sure it's Candida Moss says like, no one ever asks about Socrates's children. <laughs> like this is just not <laughs> a question in terms of male martyrdom that, you know, we're asking like, well, what about the kids? Which to me just really seemed like a kind of modern hand wringing about things like um, childcare or, you know, like putting a child in daycare or something like that. <laughs> it really seemed like the same kind of concern of like, oh no, won't someone please just think of the children, which um, is just not the point of the story. Like the story is not really reflecting on the children as their narrative devices, right? I mean, like so many other things in this text, like the dreams, like the relationship with um, between Perpetua and her father, the, the point of the story is not what happened to the child. The point of the story is what is happening to Perpetua and to Felicitas. So it just seemed to me like this was a way that scholars are, um, as you said, imposing anachronistic concepts of what is normal and natural for all time, rather than asking like, well, what was normal, what was considered normal and natural then as opposed to now? Uh, now, one of the most uh, creative and interesting things I think about your monograph is that at the end of each chapter, you feature a contemporary maternal activist uh, that reflect the example of each of the maternal ideals in question. Uh, could you briefly discuss how you chose these particular activists and how their stories contribute to your study as a whole? Sure. So I started, I think I mentioned this before, um, I started with the story of the Madres de Plaza de Mayo mm -hmm. in Argentina. Um, during the Argentinian Dirty War, in part because they were just so striking as an example of maternal activism. Um, but for my purposes in particular, because they used Mary and because they said that they were imitating Mary and that just like Mary, they were going to be present for their children, even if it meant great risk to themselves. It was just such an interesting and creative use of um, traditional Mariology for really different purposes. So initially, my thought was that I would just talk about the Madres in each chapter, because there are really interesting connections to each of these stories. And I thought, you know, it would work as um, and just it's not a comparison. I'm not trying to compare them and say they're just like Mary or they're just like these other ancient women. The point for me is a juxtaposition just to sort of show that, that there are other alternatives. Um, so I did that in the Mary chapter, and then I realized that it might just be more interesting if I had different examples from different times and places in the other chapters. Um, and they work in different ways. They're, they're all juxtapositions. They're, none of them are straight comparisons, and they're supposed to bring out something complex in each of the stories. So um, in the chapter about the women in the Book of Revelation, I consider combatants, women combatants from the Salvadoran Civil War. So the female members of the FMLN. Um, in the story, the chapter about the Maccabees, I consider the mothers of suicide bombers in Israel and Palestine and some women suicide bombers themselves. And then in the chapter about Perpetua and Felicitas, I consider the um, much more contemporary example of Pussy Riot, the women in Putin's Russia who protested um, uh, Putin's regime. So in each of them, these activists are modern examples. They're doing something very different than the ancient texts describe these other maternal figures doing. But it seemed to me that having a different modern comparison, rather than sort of what we think of as like, what should motherhood be like, which in the US context tends to be 
white, middle-class, suburban, right? There's like, when someone says, what is motherhood supposed to be like? They often really just mean this one very limited experience of motherhood. Um, And it seemed to me that including these other examples of maternal activists in modern contexts gave us a different comparison in terms of um, what motherhood might be like and what it could be like, rather than thinking of it in this very limited way. Uh, Now, in your conclusion, you make the argument that the image of religious self-sacrificing mother in ancient texts, uh, the ones under discussion, uh, meet an important psychological need within communities. You write that the self-sacrificing mother, quote, embodies certain tensions or ideals about which the community has anxiety, specifically anxieties around continuity, suffering, and community cohesion. Uh, Could you discuss this argument? Yeah, so this to me was, um, I was trying to sort of bring all the threads together because each of the chapters has, you know, this really interesting example of an ancient mother, then it considers a maternal activist. And when I got to the end, it seemed like, you know, there needs to be something that ties all of these stories together. It can't just be like these brief (laughs) vignettes about something that happened. Um, There's something that ties them all together. And it seemed to me that the, So a parent figure can symbolize a lot of um, things related to something like um, community cohesion and continuity, right? Like I think about in the book of Four Maccabees, Father Abraham functions that way as um, the kind of common ancestor that we're all connected to, who's the ideal for all of us. So any parental figure can function that way. But it seemed to me that maternal figures, and especially mothers in some kind of context of social or political violence, also bring something else. It's not just the kind of connection, the family connection. There's something about time um, and about transition, because in particular, the body of a biological mother with these highly visible changes And um, the kind of moment where one body all of a sudden eventually becomes two bodies, a mother and a child, that there's something that functions there symbolically for communities who are trying to figure out um, what their changes mean, right? What the, how their community is changing. And in particular, it seemed to me because I'm studying texts that um, many of them eventually become texts that are valued by Christians, but they they really start out in this moment when there is no Christianity, when Judaism includes the people who think that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So that it's also maybe a way of exploring that separation that eventually happens. Like maybe these communities are using maternal figures to figure out how their communities are changing, how they're pulling apart, how they then come back and overlap in certain moments. Um, So it just seemed to me that there's something going on with these texts. And um, as is implied by the title and the fact that I foreground the Virgin Mary, it's in particular um, sort of revolving around Mary as um, the, the key mother from this particular period. Uh, Now to wrap up, could you tell us about any current or upcoming projects that you're working on? Sure. Um, So I, after writing this book, I really transitioned to thinking about ancient childhood. Um, So I have been part of a group of scholars in the Society of Biblical Literature, who is working on, and this, this is something we've done in edited collections, but also sort of individually, on understanding children in the biblical world. 
um, both in terms of children as characters, but also there's a little bit of work being done that's very interesting on children as interpreters. Um, so I published something recently about children and the context of narrative violence that was really building on, in particular, the chapter about Revelation, because I focus on Revelation 12. So that's something that I've been working on and um, will continue to work on, thinking about children um, in biblical contexts of violence. Um, and then actually a different project that's um, connected, it's connected in my mind, but it's it's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily follow exactly as coming out of this work. Um, but I'm also working on some things related to pedagogy. Um, I'm at a small liberal arts college where most of my time is spent thinking about teaching and teaching and grading. And I spend a lot of time with students. So I'm really interested in how students receive some of this material and how they interact with it. Um, so I'm working on a project that's related to trauma-informed teaching. So there's some work on trauma-informed teaching in um, K-12 settings. There's a lot of work on things like trauma-informed care in law and social work and um, other fields like that. But there really isn't a lot on trauma-informed teaching at the college level. And in particular, because I end up teaching stuff that is um, sometimes very violent. I mean, in Women in the Bible, um, I sort of say at the beginning, like this whole class needs a trigger warning. Um, one of the other classes that I teach regularly as part of my course rotation is about uh, Jewish and Christian theologies of the Holocaust. So they're disturbing um, stories. They're really hard things to wrestle with. And as a teacher, I really want to think about how to do it in a way that encourages students to engage with the material and to grow, but that doesn't cause more harm for students who have experienced trauma in their own lives. That's really fascinating. And I think um, for the audience who might be listening to this later, we are recording during the coronavirus lockdown. So trauma and mm -hmm. teaching might be something that we should, we will all need uh, to be more informed about going forward. Uh, Absolutely. I think, yeah, these moments of crisis really heighten our yeah. sense of um, the gaps in our own teaching and the ways that we need to think of our students as real people, not just as um, little brains on a stick. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so today I have been speaking with Dr. Kathleen Gallagher-Elkins about her 2018 book, Mary, Mother of Martyrs, How Motherhood Became Self-Sacrifice in Early Christianity. This book is available from Feminist Studies and Religion Books. Dr. Gallagher-Elkins, thank you again for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a joy. <laughs>